Hey everyone and welcome to SermonCast, a Cheyenne Hills podcast where you can find the message portion of our services each week. We hope this gives you the opportunity to better digest the teaching portion of our services, whether listening to them again or hearing them for the first time. There isn't one of us who, given the chance, won't find a way to follow the wrong path and find ourselves lost and alone. So what does it mean then to have someone who loves us? Someone who doesn't care how far we've gone or how cold it is where we found ourselves. Someone who, even though we didn't earn it, will go any distance leaving all they have behind just to find us. When we realize we've been rescued, even though we ran away, when we understand the devotion and sacrifice our salvation required, when we feel the warmth of the hands that hold us, the strength that carries us, when we find ourselves safely home, do we realize the size of what's happened? Do we fully understand that in that moment, we know what it's like to be perfectly loved. Perfectly loved. I'm going to talk about this in the context of marriage today. And I'm going to tell you as a, as a disclaimer, I know that not everybody has this perfectly loved scenario in marriage. Some of you might be actually struggling in your marriage and you feel like, wow, we're, you have no idea. We're just like I'm hanging by a thread. Or maybe you're living in two different places right now in separation. And you don't understand or feel this being perfectly loved. I just want to say that I'm going to lift up the, the ideal uh, of our society and what God made for marriage. I know it's, there's a lot of different... Uh, there's a lot of different uh, situations. But the, as, I, as I raise up the ideal, I don't want you to feel like in any way, it's like, well, um, that you're a failure or that you failed. I just say that, listen, God can make good out of all situations, and I realize that. But I'm going to raise up the ideal and why God made one man and one woman for this matrimony. And that in this matrimony, we are to love and be loved perfectly, or at least as best we possibly can. So I'm going to raise up the ideal. And, and I just also want you to know that, especially if you single moms, as I go down through this and tell you how difficult it is, I know you know how difficult it is, single parents. But I, I want you to, to acknowledge that, as I say, that God designed this for, to two, for two people to make this thing work. You know what I mean. It's for one person to make this thing work, for a roof over your head and food on the table and get the kids to this activity and that. As a single parent, you are truly being heroic coming to church. Uh, those are difficult things, and I see them, I know them, and I just want you to put that as a disclaimer before I even start. But today, <clears throat> perfectly loved, as it pertains to the marriage. I don't know if you've watched much many, many movies, but there's this idea of a miracle at Dunkirk rescuing 338,000 troops from the French side of the English Channel and rescuing those troops back to England. The troops were rescued by all kinds of different sizes of boats. Basically, the community out, was a community outpouring to rescue these guys that were basically trapped. 
Now, the reason the Nazis didn't come and destroy them in the 1940s is because they were kind of had their sights on France. Everybody knew that, but it was one of those things in the war that they uh, really got a pass because they could have easily been destroyed. They were sitting ducks. After that, the troops of the, the, the uh, English troops were, uh, they were devastated. They were, they were um, I think, fearful. I think just diminished to a place of, I don't think we can actually engage in any kind of a battle. At that particular time is the time in 19, June 4, 1940, when Winston Churchill walked into the House of Commons and he delivered this speech. Now, if you've watched this speech in the movie, it's a passionate speech. It's a, it's a rousing speech. But I will tell you, I've listened to it live, and you can too. You can Google it and hear Winston Churchill say this live. And he speaks it very matter-of-factly, very purposefully. But it's one of those places where like many marriages, they're so down and so out, they don't need some kind of rah-rah. They just need to say, hey, keep fighting. And I think that's what he did. And today I'm going to challenge you in your marriage to keep fighting, to keep fighting for the marriage, keep fighting for your marriage. He came to the House of Commons and he says this, we shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and on the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. You know, I've always heard people say that America will not fall from without, but from pressures from within. Things like the dollar. The failure of the dollar could possibly be our demise. The collapse of the education system could be our demise. The, the collapse of our, or, or just the fact that we have this racial tension and divides in our country could be our demise. The collapse of any kind of moral integrity could be our demise. All those certainly possible and to some degree even true as we see this. But today, I'm going to raise something up because I think that if we can at least address this one cornerstone of God's created order, and if we could learn to fight for that, that's my challenge to you today, is learn to fight for the marriage. Marriage is the foundation to the relationship of a society. Here's what one person writes. All other relationships in society stem from the father-mother relationship, and these other relationships thrive if the the father-mother relationship is simultaneously a close and closed husband-wife relationship. This author goes on to say that good marriages are the bedrock of strong societies, for they are the foundations of strong families, strong marriages impact five social pillars. I'm going to address these today. They believe that the strong marriage will impact these social pillars of our day, the family, the church, education, the marketplace, and the government. I'm going to take my pass at trying to unpack this just a little bit. I think these are interesting, important uh, ideas, and I would say that I I happen to believe and and agree with their, their assessment that the marriage is the cornerstone of these and the, and the outgrowth of that marriage impacts all these pillars in our society. Haddon Robinson is, a, if you're a seminary student, you know Haddon Robinson. You probably had his book on preaching. He's the, he truly wrote the book on expository preaching. 
And an expositor, what that means is, and I was trained in a seminary that trained expository preaching. It means this book is the source, and I'm going to, we're going to preach from this book to say this is God's Word, and we preach to society. Okay, that's expository. You get, your, you get your cues from Scripture. You don't get your cues from society. Okay, that's not expository preaching. Getting your cues from society is basically preaching to be a, a good person in, in a mess. This is, preaches about, teaches us to be a righteous person in this chaos that we call life. And it gives us instructions on how to do that and how to have a marriage and a good marriage and the and value of marriage. So he's the, he, I would say he's probably the, I don't know if he's the father expository preaching, that'd be too much. But he definitely took it to another level, level and definitely wrote the book literally, on expository preaching. Haddon Robinson uh, passed away in 2017. I believe he was 86 years old. So he, he was a pastor for a long time. Uh, he started his pastorate in the 40s, uh, and he worked through the 50s. He actually was the, our preaching prof at Dallas Seminary. Um, and then he went on to be the president of Denver Sim, and then another... Uh, Gordon Conwell, I believe, another another seminary he was a president of. So he has his name is scattered across. And so anytime Haddon Robinson used to show up to a place to he was speaking, guys like myself would perk up and say, Oh my gosh, I, I want to hear that guy. It's not a guy that people necessarily hear, but if you're in the seminary world, you go, I want to listen to that guy. One time he was preaching, I, in fact, I was just listening to an old sermon of his, and I just thought it was interesting. He said this. People always ask him how expository preaching has changed from the time he started in the 1940s until he passed away in 2017. He said, what's, what's changed? And he, and he thought about it. He said, you know, really, I don't know that expository preaching changed, but what changed was the, the influence of the pastor and the church in a society has changed. It used to be in the 40s and 50s that the pastor or the church I mean, they had a, a strong voice on policy, strong voice on morality and on things that would happen in the community. Today, it's diminished to the point of uh, it's, our, our voice is rarely heard and sometimes, I think, diminished. Now, some of those reasons I just want you to know I'm fully aware of. Some of them are of my, my our own making, even pastoral um, staff making. And part of that is the immorality that we see even from the pulpit. And many, many pastors that have fallen to immorality certainly diminishes the impact of the church. Divisions that we have, even in our denominations, has diminished the impact of the church. I'm fully aware of that. Political issues, probably in the last 10 years, I think has diminished the impact of the church. And quite frankly, I think watering down God's word and trying to make this something that that we'll say, well, let's look at our society and, and say, okay, what we, can we find that matches our society versus saying, here's what God's word says. Let's see what God's word says to speak to society. Uh, I, think, I think there's too much of just people looking at society and saying, we got to go find verses that, that match our thinking versus saying, here's what God words, God's word says. So I think all those have, have diminished the impact. And many of those are... Um, of the doing of, of pastoral leadership, and I, I'm fully aware of that. So I'm not blaming anybody, but even the role that I, that I stand in. But I wish, here's what I wish for today. I wish that even just for today, that on this one particular issue, for this one moment in time, that somehow that, that you could maybe grasp and listen to 
the importance and the value and the cornerstone of this relationship that God called oneness, that God calls the marriage that God intended to build our society, our family, our government, and make a difference throughout through our, our daily lives. I wish that this sermon could wake some people up to the value of marriage. I wish it would wake some people up to this institution set up by God. Not man's idea. This is God's idea. And it's a key building block of our society. I would wish that somehow, this moment in time, this would cause maybe some of you, maybe all of you, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you've just become single, whether maybe you're pursuing a relationship, that you would understand it's important to fight for the marriage. More specifically, that you would fight for your marriage. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll, we'll dive into what the, the Bible says about marriage, at least, what, at least an introductory statement. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and like to follow along, please raise your hand and you, they will give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, keep this one. We would like for you to have this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. This, this idea that marriage is a, is a big deal, this is God's idea. This wasn't man's idea. This wasn't some kind of convenient way to, to kind of make this, you know, husband-wife relationship work. This was God's idea. And it to be, be held in honor among all is a, is a big blanket statement from the book of Hebrews. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. There's some, there's a boundary here. There's, there's some things that God says, this is fair game. Your relationships between a man and a woman is fair game within this marriage. Outside the marriage, it's not. It's immoral. It's sexually immoral. And he lays these divisions and these boundary lines down for... God always puts ideas, laws, regulations, parameters around things for our good. And that's what he's doing. He's like, it's for, it's for your own good. If you want this relationship to work, you want this oneness to be fulfilling, then to do things God's way is not, it's not a curse. In fact, it's, it's the way that God laid it, down, laid it out. And he makes, he said it'll make a tremendous difference if you just do things the way that God lays it out in his, in his word. So we're going to talk about marriage. It's God's institution set up by God. But also, if it's, if it's done well, how that impacts five pillars in society. So I've come up with these ideas of what the pillars, I didn't come up with the five pillars myself, but the, the ideas that go behind them, I just looked at myself and said, you know what, I can understand how this impacts the family, and I want to unpack a little bit my story with the family. So if a, a marriage is made up, and it's one man and one woman together, then that should impact the family. And you think about it, this was God's design. God made angels individually. As far as we know from Scripture, there's no marriage within, within the angelic. God must have created each angel individually. They are not husband and wife. There's not marriage and given in marriage. There's not procreation through the angelic. It's cherubim. 
It's seraphim. There's different classes of probably guardian angels. There's probably several different classes of angels. I just gave you the ones that I know of. But he created those individually. Man, he did something completely different. He put man in the garden. It's not good for man to be alone. So he created a helper suitable for him. And out of the rib, he created woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man was so excited about the woman. He said, oh my gosh, I finally have bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And the, and the Bible says the two will become one flesh. So you got man in the male role and the female in the female role. And he said these two will become, God sees them as one. Amazing. And these, these two come together and they, they procreate. And in fact, he told Adam to, to fill the earth and subdue it. Have children is what he's saying. And that's God's plan. It was God's plan from the very beginning that, that children would come from this union. And that's the family. I'm going to say it, circle back one more time, because I, some of you that are single and you fought for your marriage and you're single anyway, and you're, you're saying, well, so what did I do? I don't want you to go in this guilt thing. I just want to say, I'm trying to raise up the ideal. Whether you're married or you're not married, this is the ideal. And let's, do, let's fight everything we can for this ideal and this oneness that God desires. But he, even after he destroyed the, the world with a flood, he told Noah... Fill the earth and subdue it. He started over basically with just Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And he said, fill the earth and subdue it. This whole idea was God's idea of how to populate society. Now, I'm not going to go into the biological. I think everybody's got that one figured out, right? So I'm not going to say how you. But that's God's, it's God's idea. And not only is the, pro, the, the procreation God's idea, but I would tell you that... Um, this family unit was God's idea. Think of the responsibility you feel for your child. Think of the love that you feel for your child. It's just built in. You just, you just have a natural, do I care for other kids? Yes. Do I care more for mine? Of course. I mean, it's just like, I, they're my kids. They're my grandkids. There's another level of protection, another, another level of uh, being involved in their lives. The family is definitely impacted by a strong marriage. I just want to go down through just my, my uh, family just real quick. And I got to thinking about how my, my grandparents, um, not sorry, my great-grandparents came over to the States. They came through Ellis Island like a lot of people did. They got on a train. They unloaded off here in uh, uh, North Platte. They traveled down to southwest Kansas. And if you would live on a quarter of ground for a year, that's called the Homestead Act, then you could you could you would inherit. That would be your piece of property. But you had to survive there for a year, the way I understand it. Now, my great-grandparents got married. They homesteaded. They built a little shack. I've seen this shack or what was left of it, and it's, it was tiny. I was like, how in the world did they survive in this? There was a little stream through the property that might have been their water source. There's also a well on the property. So there was probably a hand-dug well. So the first, the first generation, at least of my family, the great-grandparent of my, of my lineage came in and put a tiny little shack and they got water somehow through the, either the stream or the hand-dug well that they had. Now their kids, my grandfather, didn't have to deal, dig the hand-dug well, and he didn't have to. The stream was already there. He built a little bigger house. He had a little bit more land. I think they actually homesteaded as well. But it wasn't easy. 
for my, my grandparents. Now, they uh, actually were teachers. Uh, I've heard the story. Grand, grandpa went this way. Grandma went this way. And they taught in these little schools. And they came back and they worked, you know, had a milk cow. And they, you know, broke out some ground and did the whole first or the, I guess you would call the second generation of things you can do. But he didn't have to go dig a well. He can make the actually expanded things just a little bit. In fact, he expanded things quite a bit. My parents come along. Now, they didn't have to build a home. They didn't have to uh, have, the land was pretty much, uh, uh, was expanding under my grandfather's generation. So he went to school and he actually could play, he played football. My mom was in theater and they did all kinds of different activities that way and actually came out and was a, a teacher and a football coach for nine years because he didn't have to go right back to the farm because there was some, there was a little place of, they could actually reach out just a little bit further. That was my parents' generation. I go to school, I could do some of the similar kinds of things. In fact, encouraged. It's like, before you come back to the family farm, why don't you go and just try some different things, learn something about the world, travel a little bit, try to figure life out, get another level of, of the bird's eye view of what's going on. So my, my generation got to travel a little bit more. And then my kids, they came along, and then they had a, a foundation to, to springboard from. But now, you know, not only could they go out and, uh, and uh, you know, we have a home and we had established things that probably were, some of those things were passed down to us as far as uh, understanding of, you know, getting a start and, and those kinds of things. And now I could give our kids a start, but they have this tremendous freedom. I mean, they're, they're working on their laptops and they, they could live any place in the world. I mean, what's changed in our, in our world today is because of technology is amazing. But the reason that our kids could make those jumps is because my great-grandfather homesteaded. And he dug a well. And he passed that down. And he passed it down. It's because of the family. My grandfather, my grandmother would always say, my grandfather would always say that, you know, the, the marriage, you've got, this thing's not going to work if there's divorce in our family. And I can look down through our family. There's very little divorce. My great-grandparents didn't divorce. My grandparents didn't divorce. My parents didn't divorce. We didn't divorce. I hope our kids don't divorce. I hope they, hope they have that lineage, that, that family understanding. It's because of that, I believe it gives each generation, has another little better opportunity. Now, my grandmother's always said, we'd, we'd talk about divorce, and she said, people would ask her, you know, did you ever consider divorce? And she immediately say, no, never. Murder sometimes. That was her standard line. Never divorce, though. Right? This whole idea of fighting for the marriage was, they, and, they, and they, they grew up at a different time. My, my grandparents, my grandparents' level was, they endured, they, they got married in 1935. That, in southwest Kansas, that's the middle of the dirty 30s. That's really, really difficult times. That's like drive you crazy, going out of your mind crazy during those particular times. They, they got married then. They endured that, and then, then my, my dad was born in 1941, I believe. That's the beginning of World War II. It wasn't easy. I'm sure there's several times that it was like just maddening to try to, to carve out this hunk of property and to keep that homestead going, but they didn't divorce. And it gave a platform for my parents. My parents gave me a platform. I've given my kids a platform. I think the family, it's, 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 it's God's idea. But listen, it doesn't work, and it doesn't work well. Unless one man and one woman just commit to each other and say, we're going to make this work somehow and fight for their marriage. Church. 
You know, one of the things that I, I can see that happens, I think the church actually, no question, has benefited from uh, uh, the husband and wife relationship. I mean, that's the kids, and we have children's programs and youth programs, and all the things that we do is, is based on, off of that, that the, what the family pr- produces and, and brings to the table. But I think, I think the family is also impacted significantly by the church. The church is where we get the idea of the roles of men and women. We're going to have a... a uh, at the end of this month, we're doing a marriage seminar, and there's three different couples are going to present in this. It's going to be, I think it's going to be really good. We'll talk more about these roles of men and women. But men, I'm going to just give you a challenge. I'll give you a, a little taste of where I'm coming from. I believe the man is responsible. I think the man is responsible for the spiritual uh, temperature of the home. You can have a, a mom that's on fire for God, and that's wonderful. And the kids will be on fire for God until they get to be about teenagers, and then mom starts losing her ability to keep that teenager. But if dad is on fire for the Lord, and if mom and dad are on fire for the Lord and say, I don't care, this is what we do, we just go to church. Do you realize that 39, there's a 39% more likelihood of a thriving family for those that go to church? 39% more. Then that means if you don't go, it's, I think it's like, there's like 30% of families thrive without church. But it's 39% better if you do go to church. Why? Because they learn stuff like, like oneness. The two will become one flesh. God sees you as one. And yes, you're supposed to fight for this relationship, for this marriage. It's God's idea. The idea of romance. You th- I think sometimes people think that romance or, or um, the intimate part of marriage was, came from the world. It did not. They perverted it. It came from God. I can give you just a little bit of a taste of it. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to read just a little bit. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, my true delight. My couch is green. The beams of the house are cedar. The rafters are pine. And what he's, he's basically describing is probably green grass, and there's a roof over the head. There's a protection. There's a house there. I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. He, she's just, she's, he's exalting her, she's exalting him. That's what they're doing, they're just appreciating each other. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And he brought me to his banqueting table, his house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. You can just feel his passion here, her passion here. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. This thing goes on, and it definitely explains an intimate relationship between a man and a woman. It's God's idea. It's supposed to be done in the right way. It's supposed to be done in the confines of the marriage relationship. Outside of that relationship is out of bounds. Inside of that relationship is God wants us to imbibe deeply, O lovers, that's what he says. He's created this space for a man and a woman. And if you can can fill that space up with love for your spouse and not love for others, forsaking all others, God set it up this way. That's the marriage. And out of that marriage comes family. Out of the marriage comes church. And the church pours into the marriage. And romance is part of God's idea. To give, to give the world credit for 
the, the intimate part of marriage, it's like, man, you, you're missing it. God's the one that set it up. The relationship, this relationship is supposed to forsake all others. This relationship is for purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We don't have it on the screen. No temptation has overcome you, but which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Listen, every man, I'm just talking to the guys here right now, but guys, every one of us is going to be tempted. No temptation has overcome you, which is common to man. In other words, every man that's ever walked on this planet has dealt with temptation. And the only way that you and I can overcome temptation is through the power of God through his spirit. I, I like what, uh, what uh, Billy Graham, how he described it. This has stuck with me for years. He said, listen, you cannot, you cannot prevent what bird flies in front of your frame. You can't, you can't do anything. But you can determine whether that bird builds a nest in your hair. Listen, there's certain, certain things that you're going to see. It's like, well, it can't help that. But you can't help what you dwell on. You can't help those things. And that's where the temptation comes in, to forsake all others. I'm going to talk a lot about this um, in, the, uh, in our seminar. I think it's a really important topic. Probably don't talk about it enough. Forgiveness, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. This is when Peter comes along with Jesus and says, Hey, uh, Lord, how long is a guy supposed to forgive? You remember, Peter's the only one that's married, so I don't know if he's talking about his marriage or not. But he, how long is it? I mean, like, you know, what would you guess? Like seven times? And I can just see Jesus stopping and turning to Peter. No, not, not seven times. It's 77 times. Some Bibles say 70 times seven times. In other words, this forgiveness thing, it's like, how in the world can I do that? Well, when you have a relationship with Christ and you realize how, and you finally get your head around how much Christ forgave you, and then you get this little whisper in your ear, I think it's the Holy Spirit of God saying, so do you think maybe you could forgive that person? Knowing how much you've been forgiven, could you turn around and forgive? That's what the church provides. The church provides this for the marriage, for, for, for all kinds of walks of life, but certainly for the marriage. Can you forgive within that marriage seven times? Is that your max? Seventy-seven times? Honor your father and mother. Where else do you hear this? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. It basically says to the, to the young people, this is the first time I heard it when I was in, um, as a young person. Honor your father and mother in the Lord. This is the first commandment with a promise that it'll go well with you. In other words, if, listen, you don't, it didn't even say you have to like your parents. If you have problems liking them, that's okay. You have to honor them. What does it look like to honor your father and mother? Listen to them, obey them, pay attention. Yeah, that's tough. If you honor them, it's going to go well with you. That's the first command with a promise. Where else do you get that? I don't think TikTok has that one. I'm not sure. You're going to learn that from God's word. It's like, no, if you do this, it's going to go well with you, young man, young woman. I heard that. It made a difference in my life. It's like, okay, we've got to honor our father and mother. Doesn't mean I have to agree with them. Doesn't mean I have to like all their rules. Means I have to honor them. Where do you hear that? That's, that comes from, from God's word. That's from this church. Churches' families are 39% more likely to thrive just by showing up. Does the marriage impact the church? No question. Does the church impact marriage? It's supposed to. 
How about school? I think one of the things in school, the education, uh, certainly um, during COVID lockdown, parents were home and they got to see what kids were learning on school and, and parents got involved. And that parental involvement has made a difference in our schools across our nation for the good. I don't have time to go into it, but it's like parent involvement because there's a strong, the reason that mom could be home or dad is home is because one of the other uh, the husband or the wife was out working and they could be home overseeing what was going on with the kids. And people said, hey, I could help out here. I need to shore this up. And we're seeing reading programs across our nation impacted for the good. Teachers are agreeing with us. Like, this is for the good. It's because, it's because out of a strong marriage, someone could be home, could be seeing this, and hey, I need to be helping this, my child, understand math, reading, whatever it was. So the school is impacted by a strong marriage. The marketplace is impacted by a strong marriage. I remember when our daughter was trying to, she actually had a good job. She was thriving, doing well, real proud of her. And uh, she came back from a, she, from a certain uh, kind of a trip. She was studying abroad and she came back and um, she wanted to kind of reach and jump for this kind of a pie in the sky kind of job. And she was telling us about it. And it's like, she was probably, I don't know, late 20s at the time, not married. It's like, go for it. It's like, man, run and jump as high as you possibly can. Because if you miss, we got two bedrooms up there. You can sleep in either one of them. You can put your junk in one and sleep in the other. But that, that's, what, that's what families do, isn't it? That's what we do. We have a, because we have a, a mom and a dad and we've established this place and we've got, you know, we've got a place for our kids to land. Yeah, run, jump. See if you can reach it. She got the job, by the way, so she didn't land in my bedroom, so that's good, or in our bedroom next door. But still, those are the kinds of things, because it impacts the marketplace, because mom and dad have given this child an ability to run and jump, just like my great-grandparents gave my grandparents a place to run and jump, just like my grandparents gave my parents a place to run and jump, just like my parents gave, you see the importance of this oneness that God says. This is how it's set up. It makes a difference for the marketplace. It makes a difference in government. I grew up in a small community, and I would guarantee you, if, if ever, and I didn't, just so you know, but if ever I got picked up by the police, I'm not saying I'm going to get stopped, but if I ever got in trouble with the police, I would be more, it would be, it would be more terrifying to come home than it would be to stay in that jail, right? So, um, yeah, it's just like, but if, if anybody in the community did get in trouble, I will tell you the, the police officer, the sheriff, whoever it is, they could find the fine dad, any dad in the coffee shop and say, Hey, I don't know if you knew this, but this is what your son did. And this is blah, blah, blah. If they got it, I'll take care of it. Thank you very much. Listen, if, if the parent, if when it's, you have strong families, you can do that. If you, if you don't have a strong family, if you have, if you have, uh, if they're separated or divorced or whatnot, and then the parents or the school or whatever is trying to discipline, you've got two parents that they're not in unity. They're probably playing one against the other just a little bit on this. That's not good for the kid. Listen, discipline and, and um, accountability is so much better when you've got a mom and dad in lockstep. And you've got mom and dad in lockstep, it's pretty hard to break that one. And they're standing in solidarity to say no. I agree with your teacher, or I agree with that police officer. This is out of bounds, and there's going to be a consequence. 
That's, that's how this thing's supposed to work. It doesn't work that way much anymore, but that's how it's supposed to work. My kids always knew, as I got passed down to me, if you get in trouble, I'm going to stide with the teacher every time, every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Heard that a lot. So what are you going to do about this? Here's, here's three things. There's five things I want you to fight for, okay? First thing I want you to fight for, you've got to learn to fight on your knees. This is praying for the marriage, okay? Grab your wives. Guys, this is your, your responsibility. You're the... I think you're the spiritual leader of the home. You're the one that's going to answer for this marriage. You grab your wife's hand and you pray. Not just for the food and all that stuff, but sometimes just pray. Just you too. Just pray for the family. Pray for your kids. Pray for your grandkids. Lead out in this. You got to fight on your knees. Second thing, you got to fight with your eyes. I'm going to talk a lot more about this in the, the purity, in, the, uh, in our um, seminar this Friday, Saturday, or the 24th, 25th. But purity, listen, you've got to fight for purity. If you, if you get lax on this one, you've got to fight with your eyes. You've got to say, that's, that's out of bounds. You've got to put some blinders on. You've got to have some tools. I'm going to talk about those tools. You've got to fight with your eyes. You've got to fight with your heart. Um, forgiveness is hard to do. But it's essential to do. You've got, to, you've got to fight with your heart to say, overcome some pride sometimes and say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I messed this one up. I'm sorry. Such a powerful thing. You've got to fight with your heart and forgive. You've got to fight with your mind. We're going to talk a lot about this in the, in the seminar, but this neuroplasticity is an interesting way of understanding the pathways in our brain. There's things that we choose and we cut these grooves in our brain that can be good or bad. Some of these need to be changed. But you've got to fight with your mind because you're, listen, the, the world is not a friend to the marriage. And you know that. The world wants you to do all kinds of other stuff outside of the marriage. And if you're going to have a marriage that honors God, you're going to have to fight with your mind. You have to learn. Learn how to retrain some things. It can be retrained. You, you can have some Cut some new grooves, some important new grooves in your, in your mind. We're going to talk more about that. And finally, you've got to fight with your mouth. What you say comes out of your mouth. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Um, there's only a handful of you that really care what, about the Super Bowl today. The Broncos are not in it. The Bills are not in it. Um, heck, I don't know. And Kansas City is. And so we, we're in a dilemma. I mean, what are you supposed to do with this? So what are you going to do from 1 o'clock to 4.30? I've got an idea to fight with your mouth, okay? Here's what I want you to do. Go home and fight with your mouth. But here's the, the Bible says this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, it says, the husbands must love their wife. I want you to put the word cherish in there. And the, the, the woman must respect her husband. And so the fight that I want you to have is to fight with doing these good words. Guys, I want you to come up with ways that you think that you cherish your wife. This may not take long, so you're going to have to, you may have to do some more things too. But, but, but I want you to think, okay, when I say this, I'm thinking that cherishes you. When I do this, I'm, I'm hoping that cherishes you. Then once you've said what you think cherishes her, then you give her a chance. What, what are some things that I do or could do that, and she'll probably come up with one or two things that you do or could do that makes her feel cherished. That may take some time, okay? 
And then ladies, I want you to take a shot at it. Here's some things that I think I do that makes you feel respected. Some of them may land. And give him a shot. It's like, you know, you know when, you, when you say this, that makes me feel respected. We're supposed to, men are, you must love, you must cherish your wife. Women, you must respect your husband. That's just, we're going to talk a lot about this in the seminar. But this, these two things got to work together. And so it'll give you something to do. And I'll just tell you, if you do this well, uh, you, you might be late for your Super Bowl party. I don't know. We must fight with our mouth. Say the kind of tender things, things that make her feel cherished, things that make him feel respected. We must fight for the marriage. Would you pray with me? Father, I think about those here in this room today that, I don't know, that maybe, you say, Galen, you don't have any idea. We're kind of on our way out. I pray for that one, Lord. I know you can rescue it, and I fight for that one right now. Lord, for those that, are, that just need a tune-up or maybe just need a, just kind of a refresher course, Lord, I pray that they take some of these challenges. Pray for each other. Pray together. Pray for the men in this church to step up and be the spiritual leaders at home. And they would set a tone for fighting for the marriage. In this area of purity, the area of forgiveness, God, we need, we need your spirit in working in each one of our hearts. I really do believe this is the foundation stone that you put for family, for school, for, for government, for church. Is strong, healthy, vibrant marriages. God, this, this sermon is to, is to fight for the marriage. I pray, that, I pray that you would honor that, and I pray this in Jesus' name.